0: Hello, and welcome to Being Boss, a podcast for creative entrepreneurs. I'm Emily Thompson, and I'm Kathleen Shannon.
1: I'm Jessica Murnan, and I'm Being Boss.
0: Hey, bosses. Today, we are talking with Jessica Murnan of One Part Plant, all about writing a book. As always, you can find all the tools, books, and links we reference on the show notes at www.beingboss.club. All right, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes it can be really awkward asking your clients to pay you. And this is why I love FreshBooks Cloud Accounting so much. One, it makes it less personal. It makes it feel like you have your own accountant sending out invoices and they're super professional. You're going to feel completely confident sending your clients invoices. But also what's really awesome about it is that FreshBooks helps you avoid having that awkward talk with your client about past due payments. You can automate late payment email reminders so you can spend less time chasing payments and more time time working your magic and doing what you do best. And you guys, if you have any questions whatsoever, FreshBooks has award-winning customer service. It's amazingly helpful, super friendly, and zero attitude. Plus a real live person usually answers in three rings or less. So if you've been wanting to try out FreshBooks, I want to offer it to you today for free, a 30-day unrestricted free trial just for our Being Boss listeners. To claim it, go to freshbooks.com slash beingboss and enter "Being Boss" in the how did you hear about us section. Jessica Mernan is a wellness advocate, podcast host, and creator of the One Part Plant Movement. Her cookbook, One Part Plant, is available where cookbooks are sold and it will be released on March 23rd in the UK. She lives in Charleston, South Carolina with her husband, son, and lots of palm trees. Let's go ahead and jump in. Jessica, thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks.
1: I, uh, I have one mission in this podcast.
0: Oh. And
1: it is get, it is, is for it to be silent. And then I get a mmm from Emily. Mm. (laughs) Mm. When something really resonates with her, she goes, mmm. And I, it's like, I always am like,
2: yeah. I love that. Love. Good. I think that's a beautiful goal. And, um, I will, I will try to hold space for deep resonation (laughs) or resonance. I guess the word would be resonance. Man, making up words. All right. Good. Love it. Okay. Go ahead.
0: (laughs) Okay. So, Jessica, let's go ahead and jump in for our listeners who aren't familiar with you or with One Part Plant. Tell us a little bit about your path as a creative entrepreneur and what led you to getting a book deal for one part plans. Yes.
1: So just brief background, background. I uh is it okay if I don't look at you? Okay. It feels (laughs) weird. (laughs) Like I'm looking at my little Buddha. Um so so for be so for brief background, background. My former self is a graphic designer. That's what I got my degree in. And then I had so many jobs. I uh, owned a stationery company. I opened a bar. I ran a celebrity clothing line. I worked at magazines. And I just kept on try- – it's like every single night I would go to bed and think, what's my thing? What's my thing? What's my thing? And then I started One Part Plant because I have endometriosis. And I really just started it because food had – Really helped me with my endometriosis. I was supposed to get a hysterectomy. And I just thought, I, had to, I have to share this information with people. So I started One Part Plant and not really as an idea to make money because I didn't want to start a blog. I just wanted, I always said, it's not a blog, it's a website. So, and that made me feel okay with the fact that I wasn't making money from it. <laughs> so I started a website. And then it just started to grow and people started connecting with it. And it's funny because I actually had another book that, um, another book proposal out for something called So How Was Your Day. And it was a completely different website that I did on the side, again, just for fun. But a publisher saw it and they said, We're not interested in this book, but is this the same girl from One Part Plant? And I was like, What? Because that's actually what I want to do with my life is this, but I didn't really think that that could be a career. And then
0: it did come my career. <laughs> okay, wait. So let's rewind a little bit. Tell us a little bit about what One Part Plant is. Like, what is your mission behind it? What specifically helped you with yeah, sure. Like, what is the focus around the website, <laughs> not a blog? Yeah. <laughs> Well, do you know what I mean? You know, when you feel like you don't
1: want to become a blogger and there's nothing wrong with bloggers, but you're just like, I'm trying to create something different in this space. So, uh, so yeah, so the website, not the blog, but one part plant (laughs) is an overall mission. It's not just a website or a book or it's, it's this, I want everyone in this world to eat one plant-based meal a day. That's, that's my mission in life. And, I think that that is an attainable goal. I'm not asking people to become vegan or vegetarian or paleo or raw. I just want them to eat one plant based meal a day. And, you know, with that, I changed to a plant based diet. It's been six years ago. And I mean, I went from, you know, it says on my website, my diet consisted of Sour Patch Kids and Diet Coke. And like that's pretty much what I ate. And so changing my diet was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. So, You know, I know how hard it is, and that's why I created this mission of just starting with one meal because I feel like it's an approachable way to start.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it's more about adding really great food into your diet less than removing things. Yeah. You know, like if you start to fill up your plate with vegetables and plants, there's not going to be as much room for the Sour Patch Kids. Right, Exactly. And the more plants that you eat, you'll start to notice that.
1: And I didn't believe that this could happen, but it did. Your taste buds start to change and you you start craving those things less. And it's it's amazing when people don't know what's making them feel bad. So if you go out and you eat a big sandwich that has deli meat, cheese, bread, everything, and then your stomach hurts, you have no idea what's hurting it. But if you kind of like start to slowly, and I know Kathleen, I think you're into the whole thirty,
0: yeah, thing. yeah, and so like super paleo. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but but at the same time, that same concept is you know you're kind of taking away some things to kind of see what makes you feel good and what doesn't. So at the end of your whole thirty, you can look back and say, wow, so I actually don't really feel bad when I eat bread, but I do feel really
0: bad when I eat cheese. So maybe.
1: So I, I just I just don't think it has to be all or nothing.
0: Exactly. So, how many years ago did you start one part plant? How many years ago did you start the website? I think maybe
1: three or four years ago.
0: And were you blogging every day? Or no, what was that,
1: that like? was like maybe once a week. <laughs> and really, you know, there was a big restaurant component to it, to where you know. The driving force was partnering with restaurants for them to carry one plant-based meal a day. So I had them – I considered it as a resource guide on my site. So I didn't feel like I had to update it that often because it's like, hey, it's still got information on it. But yeah, I just – I don't know. It's just – blogging is just not something that I necessarily wanted to do. Like I I didn't want to – have to buy a super nice camera and take food photos. I it's just it's just not like this is actually funny. My friend had a little intervention with me because I wasn't posting any food photos to Instagram because I felt like it seemed cliché. <laughs> she said, "You're trying to help people eat better. You have to post photos of food. And I was like, okay, you're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. So I've now really embraced it more, but I did fight against it in the beginning.
2: So I want to go back to the health journey though, that led you to creating this book. So, you know, six, six years ago, you said you started eating plant-based. You started the website three years ago. Like what was the like personal journey that got you to caring about plant-based when you really love Sour Patch Kids?
1: Well, I mean, I don't know if you guys are familiar with endometriosis, but it's when the the type of lining that is on your uterus can grow outside of your uterus and it can grow into other parts of your body. And one in 10 women have it, but I would say maybe one in five actually know that they have it. And so that endometriosis, it I wasn't diagnosed with it until I was 28, and it just became increasingly so bad. I had multiple surgeries for it. I um, tried everything possible. I took painkillers. I smoked weed. Nothing was helping the pain. So my doctor said I had to get a hysterectomy, and uh, I got a second opinion, and that doctor said the same thing. And so a friend actually came to stay with me in L.A., I mean, when she lived in L.A. and she came to stay with me in Chicago and she saw me like I had to hold myself up on a table because I couldn't even stand up. And so when she got back home, she started doing research on her own for on my behalf, which makes me want to cry. But, um, yeah, she she sent me all this information about how a plant based diet could help my endometriosis. And I didn't think that it would work. I really had kind of zero faith in it working, but I also felt I'm kind of a people pleaser. And I thought, okay, well, I'll try this because she sent it to me. And within a matter of weeks, it worked and I never got a hysterectomy.
2: I love that. That's awesome. I love hearing stories like that when people have these health issues and go to the doctor because I'm all about like crushing the establishment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And doctors sort of say these things, but there are there are alternatives. You just have to dig deeper and look past pharmaceutical companies and all those fun things. Um, so I love that you... Ooh, getting political up in here. This is not politics. <laughs> well, I mean, but it's true because, you know, there is no
1: cure to endometriosis and there is no cure to a lot of things that plants can help, but... You can't get in bed with the kale industry. There's no it's not there's no money in that for doctors. So a lot of doctors aren't going to tell you, Yeah, change your diet. That's the answer. No, they're gonna prescribe you medicine to change it.
0: So did you go back to those doctors that told you that you would need to get a hysterectomy and say, look at me? I now, did. Bitches. I actually brought one of them a <laughs> dozen plant based cookies.
1: And he just sort of was like, (laughs) kind of just disregarded it. Um, The other person, the other woman that told me to get a hysterectomy, I kind of had a soft spot for her because she was the first doctor that actually believed my pain and did diagnose me. So I kind of wanted to give her a second chance in a way and say, look, this helped me. But she just wanted me to get back on the pill and take medicine. And I'm like, I can't, I can't, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm sorry. So I stopped seeing her. Mm. But yeah, women out there, man, it takes women an average of 10 doctors to get diagnosed with endometriosis. It's just – it's insane. And it it takes most women, they're not diagnosed until they're 30 years old. So if you have symptoms and your periods aren't normal, like, you should not be curled up in bed. It's not normal to feel that pain. So – Man. Sorry okay. that we got so, deep on that. I'm so no, it's <laughs> no good.
0: I I mean I think that a lot of our listeners struggle with health issues and feel like there are not doctors that have their backs and have to go to figuring out their own answers, whether that's alternative medicine or their diet or trying things like acupuncture. But um, I think it's really cool that you continue to advocate for yourself and that your friend had your back and that you actually tried it and it worked. Okay. So then I want to talk a little bit then more about the capturing and shaping and sharing your journey for public consumption. So you start the website mm-hmm. to, have, <laughs> to have restaurants carry plant-based food so that you have stuff to eat exactly. whenever you out Just to eat. It's kind of selfish. <laughs> right. <laughs> But then at what point does it start to transform into a place where you are blogging and where you are starting to think like, okay, wait, this is something more than just a website and at any point, was there like what day job were you working at that point? And was there a leap that you made where you were like, "I'm going to take this gig full time"? Yeah. Or are you still working a day job? No,
1: I'm not. I probably should be working a day job, but um, right now <laughs> I'm uh, living off the rest of my book advance because I'm I'm trying to figure things out. But no, but I um, I don't know. I was still doing graphic design. When this was happening, I had a stationary company, and so I was still doing that. but my heart was just not in design anymore and I think a lot of that came from the fact that design gave me a lot of anxiety and I don't I know you guys are design people, but when you go to bed at night and you're like you can't sleep because of a weight of a paper and an ink color be like <laughs> being like a shade off. Like and no one else would notice but you. I just kind of felt like it just it just gave me it was just giving me too much anxiety I didn't think was worth it
0: anymore. So I That is fascinating. Like I would think obsessing because I have gone to bed obsessing over paperweight and ink. Colors and all of that print jobs. I mean, I was more freaked out about the permanency of like print design and making a mistake. But I would think that that kind of, well, anxiety, for lack of a better word, is actually maybe... Showing how passionate you were about design, or was that not your experience? Was that not a passionate anxiety? Was it just? A- I think I mean, there's
1: definitely passion there, but I just I remember this very specific moment. My friend and I shared an office space, and I was designing a logo, and I put two logos up on the screen together, and I'm like, which one? Which one? Which one? And she's like, I do not see a difference between the two at all. And I'm like, okay, but that R is a 16th of an inch different than that R. She's like, girlfriend, you need to go back to your office and you need to like relax because no one can see the difference between these two things. And so I think it was a passion, but I just think it was just, I don't want to feel
0: that anxiety about being perfect, I guess. So do you not feel that kind of anxiety though with one part plant and getting the perfect photo or making sure I don't. the recipe is like to the T.
1: Yeah. I mean, I definitely, I felt that way with, I felt that way with the book and I felt that way, but I guess I just started, I, I guess I felt like there's a bigger purpose to this. Um, or I just, I guess I just felt like I care about it. Like me putting a yeah. recipe on a website it it feels good it, it i don't know and i think that they're i don't know it just feels good design just didn't feel good anymore
2: i think i think all of us like creative passionate passionate people have have our own like neuroses almost like we all have these things that like either make us Twitch, but at the same time, make us Twitch, like these little right. things. And like, you can get into a profession that like feeds that for good. And then there are other things that you can do that will feed those things for bad. And so, and that's something that I've like, every time I've made a switch, I feel like I have find myself like spiraling into something that's no longer good. And so having to like refocus that energy is what makes it worth it again. I don't know. I feel like that's kind of, I've No, I totally, that.
1: I think that that <laughs> totally makes sense. And, you know, if, the designer that designed my book at Harper Collins is listening to this. She can attest, like this bitch, still cares about design a lot. And like <laughs> I was like probably the worst person ever to work with because I would email back and say, "Hey, could you move that about a sixteenth of an inch, or can you move that point five down in type size?" So I still love design, but I think stepping away from it, sort of what you're saying, Emily's, I can see now that I prefer directing or creating an overall brand as opposed to getting in there and actually creating a logo or actually, you know, creating a poster or something. I just –
2: I didn't enjoy that anymore. Totally get that. All right. I want to talk about the book though because I was listening to some things earlier. Are we ready to talk about the book, Kathleen? I'm ready to talk about this book.
0: I mean, I have more things I could say about design and an obsession (laughs) with that. And (laughs) I I just want to share one thing about that for our listeners. Yeah, please. please. Because I think that whenever you are on a path to becoming a creative for a living, I, I think that a really great way to start is to be obsessed with your craft. And I'm definitely hearing that from you, Jessica. Emily, I know that you've been really obsessed with your craft in coding perfect websites i've certainly i still my i still get twitchy whenever i see letting that is off or bad <laughs> kerning
2: the ju- and- i'm gonna start tweeting the shit that kathleen says to me about kerning and justification and all of those fun things just emily m so- underscore thompson on twitter <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think it's definitely this um I, I think that the this dedication to mastering your craft is super important but when you start feeling like it has no purpose. That's whenever it's time for that craft to become a tool in your tool belt and to be become something that helps you create what it is that you're supposed to be creating. So I think for all of us, even today, use our design skills and our coding skills and this craft that we've learned to create the thing or really to share the message that we really want to share and to create the brands that we want to create so that's all I'll say about that so if you guys listening have anything like where you're starting to feel like uh I don't wanna just be designing for design's sake or I don't wanna just be sketching or drawing or illustrating for that sake or coaching for coaching's sake. Like really start to think about what is it that you really have to say and what is it that you're really working for? And Jessica, it sounds to me like you found what it is that you're really working for through this personal journey of starting one part plant and letting it grow into something beyond just a design project or just even maybe a food project.
1: Yeah, and I think definitely towards the end of my design career, I was taking on less jobs where it was sitting down and doing a logo and I was taking on a bigger job like doing restaurant branding, like the overall look and feel. But even that just felt like, I don't know. My whole life, all I have wanted to do is I know I've wanted to have a a job to help people, but I was never sure how to do that. And I think I'm, I know that I'm, uh, what is that called? Uh, the overly sensitive person. What is that? The highly sensitive person, the HSP, whatever. Um, I know I'm one of those and I knew that, I take stuff home with me and I knew that like working with certain groups I'd be too sensitive to do that and I know that might sound crazy but food felt like a safe space to help people. Is that selfish to say
2: that? Hell no. Oh. Okay, I love that. Cuz we we all have our we all have our thing and we don't get to choose it. Like sometimes I <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I just thinking, sometimes I think about like telling people what I do and then I have to laugh at myself but also at their faces and like you don't choose how you just or even what you're sharing you just have to do it so no it's not selfish yeah. you just own it okay <laughs> not own people own telling people I'm a podcaster and they're like hey <laughs> I'm like, it's like an online radio show. What station? Oh.
0: <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I hear what you're saying, Jessica, because my neighbor is a social worker. And I work mm-hmm. with, you know, and I I work with some people who are t- doing some truly noble, hard work. And whenever I think about that, whenever I think about the kind of work that social workers do that work for DHS or whatever, it crushes me like i i would be a sobbing mess all the time because you're a hype i think you're you're a sensitive person like i am too like i think you
1: like i've heard podcasts and i have this problem that you feel compelled that you have to respond to everyone which i do too because i never want to hurt anyone's feelings and like and and i think you're that same sensitivity where you see your neighbor doing this work and you're like wow i want to help people but at the end of the night could you go to bed cuz all you would be thinking about is that kid that didn't have a home and and i've had to like reckon with the fact within myself to know like it's okay if you're not cut out for that work even though that's the work that you would like to do and i think that's one of the big reasons why i decided to do it with
0: food because it's like i want to do something but i have to protect myself too Yeah. And at the same time, I think that if we were all just out doing social work or the work that we find most noble, I think that teachers is another one. Like I have so much respect for teachers. I could never do it. I can't even home. I can't even imagine homeschooling (laughs) my kid. Right. Like that is so far outside of my realm of skill sets or scope or attention span. All of it. Anyway, all of this to say, this is why I love this ecosystem and economy of creative entrepreneurs because we're all doing wildly different things and contributing in different ways and it's all of it is super important even though to some of us it's like well except that you know that social worker is doing way more important than work than podcasting <laughs> right. but you know maybe not necessarily right like we're all contributing to the quilt that is life tweetable. <laughs> that <This> is beautiful, <laughs> This is a beautiful sentiment. Okay, but let's get into okay. the book. I'm ready. Okay. I'm ready to get into the book. Did you, so you've got this book coming out now. Wait, How wait, wait, cons- wait.
2: Oh. I, would, I need to talk about another part of this book that I find hysterical and amazing. And that is the fact that you had two proposals out at one time. I had
1: the one proposal out and then when someone said, "Is this Jessica from One Part Plant?" I was like, "All right, let's just do the let's let's get the One Part Plant thing." Oh, so they had just seen my yes. website. Um, gotcha. Yeah, I mean, I, I had a very small following. Like, I had five hundred Instagram followers. Like, I my agent didn't think that it like that could even potentially be a book. Like, for maybe ever or a long time at least. So um but once that person said that I was like, I don't want to do that
0: other thing. I wanna do this thing. I'd rather do one part plant. Okay, wait, I need some I need some like clarity around this. So you had the proposal for what was that one called? It was called So How Is Your Day? It was a website. Okay. So you had a proposal out for So How Is Your Day? You were working with an agent? Yes. On that book proposal, correct. And your agent was like, "I don't think." So, had you approached your agent and said, "But I have this other thing called One Part Plan," like, no, no. At, no. So then you were approached by the agent for. So, how was your day? Actually, <laughs> like how it, like, Yeah, how let's do, go. Let's just go. Back.
1: No, but we'll go back. Chronological. Even, we'll go back even okay. more. I really wanted to do an entertaining book, so I made a proposal for an entertaining book.
0: Wait, what does that mean? What's an entertaining book? An entertaining book because I felt like at the
1: time that there was really, really high-end entertaining books. You know, it's got recipes and- Like throwing a party, like that Correct. kind of entertaining. Correct, like, inter- okay. yeah, entertaining. Um, You had really high-end and then you kind of had like, the preppy Kate Spade situation. And then you had this super DIY. It's like, where's the middle ground, right? So I put together this really great proposal for that. I, a friend linked me up with that person, with her agent. And the agent said, this book, this proposal is amazing. No one buys entertaining books. So I was like, oh, so my idea, it's just that no one buys it. It's just not that there's a hole in the market. So she said, but I think that you have a book in you, but it's not this book. So then I started, so how was your day? And a year later I said, is this a book? And she said, this is a book. So we put together a proposal for that, and then that did not end up being the book, but One Part Plant was my book. So I've written three okay. book proposals.
0: So <laughs> pause here for a second. Did Apparently, at one point, you knew that you wanted to write a book, right? <laughs> <laughs> this is what I wanted to get to exactly. Right? Has the book always been a part of your big vision? Like, so you you love books? Were you like, I'm going to write a book one day? And then you were just kind of like, Is this it? Is this it? Like, have you always been searching for the book in you? I've always been obsessed with books. Like, and
1: the my my face didn't need to be in the book. My name didn't even need to be in the book. I just wanted a book that I produced. Like that is all, that is definitely a mission that I had. And I remember I went out to dinner with my friends. This is probably like 10 years ago. And we were talking about like our master plans in life. And I said, my master plan, and I'm not kidding you. I actually said this. I've never told anyone this. (laughs) The only two (laughs) people that know it are Allie and Emily. But I said, I'm going to create a brand I'm going to get a book deal from that brand, and then I'm going to create products from that. I don't know what these things are yet, but that's what I'm going to do. And I mean, ten years later, it happened, and it's not in anything
0: I thought it would be in.
1: But I've always wanted a book. I love that. And that
0: is how you use your imagination, boss. <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> what <you> want. Exactly. <laughs> Oh, thanks for sharing that. Because I think that that's how a lot of us in our careers, I think that's how a lot of it works. Like, you know how sometimes people talk about dreaming about their wedding day from the time they were five? I bet like all of us were five-year-olds who were like, okay, what what kind of boss am I going to be? What kind of brand am I going to build? And it seems silly and almost even frivolous that a really young, perhaps even naive dream could turn into a real thing. But I really do think that's how it works. But why also, and maybe
1: I'm the only one, why did why is there a little bit of fear or embarrassment for telling that story? Like I felt a little bit of anxiety like telling that story, even though I don't think people would feel anxiety thinking, oh, I know exactly. The, I knew exactly the kind of dress I wanted for my wedding. But I felt anxiety saying, and then I said, I'm going to have a book. You know what I mean? <laughs>
2: It's just a complete vulnerability, like not only talking about like sharing stories like that period, no matter what they're about, like causes some serious vulnerability, but also being very forthcoming about what it is that you want is something that makes most people's skin crawl. (laughs)
0: And I think to want something that's outside of the social norms of I want the dress or I want the babies or, you know, like something that's outside of the social conditioning for women in general to say, I want a brand, I want a book, I want products, and I want to make bank. We're not conditioned to feel okay saying those things. Right, right.
2: And to have no idea how you're going to make it happen. Like just to want it without any plan in place. Yeah, and all I thought it
0: things. I thought
1: it was gonna be the entertaining book and it wasn't at all. I mean, I at that dinner I was probably stuffing my face with food that I would never eat now. <laughs> not not knowing that in the future it would be a book that is so not about that food.
0: That's fine. Okay, so you got hooked up with the agent. One part plant came to surface that this was the book. Did you ever think about self-publishing or did did you kind of start to go down the route of traditional publishing because you got the agent or is that kind of always a part of your vision is that you're going to have this book that's traditionally published and kind of have the clout that comes behind that? Yeah,
1: I I think self-publishing is amazing, so I'm not knocking it, but I, there is no way I was interested in that at all. And I think that comes from being burnt on design because I knew that if I self-published a book, I would design it. I was had zero interest in doing that at all. And yes, you could probably hire someone to do it, but I wouldn't have been able to hire someone to do that because I would have felt like I had to do
0: it. That is exactly why we are traditionally publishing as well.
2: <laughs> because if we were self-publishing, it would never go to print. No. Ever. Like we would tweak that kerning every day for print. the rest of our lives.
0: Well, and there's also this like amount of guidance. I don't know if you felt this, Jessica, but this amount of guidance of going through something new, like, okay, how many times can we put ourselves through going through the next new thing and having to figure it out for ourselves? Like, wouldn't it be nice to just have a little bit of guidance whenever it comes to writing, designing, publishing, distributing, promoting something that you've never done before? Yeah, and I think that's the thing is I definitely
1: think that You can look at your publisher as your distribution arm because I probably could have hustled for a year to try to get in Barnes and Noble, but I didn't want to hustle for a year because I wanted to hustle to write this book and make it beautiful. And so, yeah, I I think self-publishing is amazing. It's just not something I was interested in.
0: Okay, so tell us a little bit about shopping the proposal then to publishers and getting HarperCollins. Sure. And by the way, I think I told you, but the new podcast I have out, The Cookbook Deal,
1: chronicles the entire year. So I'm excited oh, nice. for people to hear that. I mean, I really reveal everything. There's some not so like nice moments in it. But – um. Ooh. Wait, where can our listeners find that podcast? It's going to be at thecookbookdeal.com and it will be on iTunes. But – um. Perfect. But yeah, I chronicled the whole year and I actually chronicled uh, doing the pitches in New York with publishers and I met with 15 publishers, which was just, you know, in the podcast I talk about how I went into all these meetings like a robot and I was like, I was so on, my hair looked so good, My and then after the last meeting I went outside and I threw up because it was just like everything flooded up at once. <laughs>
0: But I like – And you literally threw up. Yeah.
1: But but in those meetings, <laughs> I killed it. Like I had no – I was not nervous at all. I was like, I am doing this. And then I went outside and was like, okay, you did it. Now let it all out. <laughs> and like you yarfed
0: in the streets. Yeah. I mean, York. it
1: was like a little puke. It wasn't like drunk puke. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I have a phobia, dear listeners. Kathleen right? here. I – Growing up scares the shit out of me. Yeah, it's not a pretty like, thing. I have a phobia of it. So like you tell me that and I'm like, my heart's racing. I'm like, wait, you threw up? <laughs> okay, not to not to focus the conversation on that. So you you are super put together. You're doing this in person. Mm-hmm you have fifteen publishers interested in your book. How did you land in land on HarperCollins? So I don't know if your I don't know if your listeners know, but a lot of times
1: what will happen with a book is that it goes to auction. And so when it goes to auction, you know, it's kind of a crazy system. And it's not, you know, my agent standing in front of a room saying like, do you one million dollars for Jessica's book? But it's like it's done (laughs) over the phone and email. But um, you know, they won the auction, and that's who I wanted to go with anyway. They were my first choice. So it actually ended up to be great. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, there was, I met with three different imprints of HarperCollins, and um, just if people don't know what imprints are. It's a publisher within a publisher. So most publishers have, they could have up to like 250 imprints that focus on a specialized genre of books. And so I ended up going with Harbor Wave, which does a lot of more wellness and food and cooking books. So, I mean, I couldn't, it was my dream. And I actually mentioned this in the podcast. There's this moment where I'm talking with my agents after the meetings. And I said, you don't understand. I just walked into the offices of the people that made my favorite books in my entire life. And like, you might take that for granted, but even if I don't get a book deal, That was enough just to walk into those offices. And I don't care like if that sounds
0: cheesy because it meant a lot to me, you know? Yeah. And I think that's um, highlighting a big part of what we believe here at Being Boss is enjoying the process. You know, like the process of pitching the book could have been full of anxiety and stress and a lot of like negative feelings, but instead you enjoyed it. You were like, yes, like this is a win in itself, right? Just being able to pitch the book to 15 publishers. That's amazing. So yeah, whenever you talk about going to auction, um, whenever we were – Pitching the Being Boss book, and we had publishers interested in it. It almost felt like a blend between—I've never rushed for a sorority, but from what I hear, <laughs> <laughs> because you're kind of interviewing each other, mm-hmm. right? Um, you're trying to see if they're a good fit for you. They're trying to see if you're a good f- fit for them. It's kind of a blend between rushing for a sorority and then also buying a house, yes. Where people are putting in their bids, and but I think finally, I think the craziest thing too that. I mentioned again
1: in the podcast is that it felt like one of the first times in my life where I wasn't trying to prove myself. Like they wanted to meet with me and that I went into those meetings feeling like I would almost have to defend that I didn't have a lot of Instagram followers and that, you know, I do know these people and I would leave the meetings and I would tell my agent. My God, they were so nice, and she's like, "Yeah, they wanted to meet with you." And I think that, as sometimes <laughs> yeah. as a business owner or as a creative, you're constantly trying to prove while you're awesome. And it felt so good to just sit back and think like, "Oh, you already think I'm awesome. That's why I'm here." So it it felt good too.
2: Yeah, I think definitely one of one of my very biggest boss moments was sitting in some publisher calls and like same sort of experience where you're sort of put on the spot for knowing your shit and if you're doing it you know your shit and that feels damn good (laughs) So
0: can we talk about those 500 Instagram followers? Because I know for us, whenever we were pitching our book, looking at our assets was huge for our agent and for publishers being interested, or at least it felt huge. Like you need to have so many Facebook followers and Instagram followers and newsletter subscribers and all the things, right? Because this day and age, I think that a lot of publishers really want to see that you have a good like promotional vehicle already put in place for whenever the book comes out so tell us a little bit about your instagram following when you pitch the book now you have over sixteen thousand. i checked this morning as well i i want to tell
1: you something about that okay (laughs) i have i definitely have thoughts about that um no i actually knowing that we were going to get on this call and knowing that that might be a topic that we would talk about i looked at my proposal and in my proposal, it, I had 2000 followers when I pitched the book. And all for my podcast, I had, I was, I felt like it was like an over 40,000 downloads. And I was like, yeah, look how, but I mean, that's so I've grown so much because I have way more than that now. But just to show you, I didn't have that many downloads. And I didn't have that many followers. And when I say that many, in the scope of people that I'm a peer with, you know, you know, because most of the people in my space have a hundred thousand Instagram followers or more. Yeah, so and it's like no
0: big deal for them,
1: right? Exactly. And they've got know, a little blue badge next to
0: their name, and they're like, <laughs> exactly, "What? That?
1: Exactly." Whereas there's other people that don't have. A podcast or an or a blog or a website or whatever and have 200 Instagram followers and they think a thousand is a lot. So it's all relative, but it's not relative when you're trying to get a book deal like you should have a lot. So I think that I got the book deal with that low amount for a couple of reasons. One, I had a concept, a very concrete concept of one part plant having one plant-based meal a day. I didn't pitch... Another plant-based book with chock full of recipes, easy for your family. It was a very concrete concept and I positioned it in a way as being the new meatless Monday. And I think that the way that I positioned it gave it legs outside of it just being a book. So that was important. I also think that guess what? Before Instagram, people had influence <laughs> and I, and I definitely have a really great network of friends and family that are influencers outside of social media. And I, you know, I just, the number game drives me absolutely insane. Like it makes me sick because some of the coolest people I know are not on social media and they are just as influential as the person that has a hundred thousand followers because they're charismatic and cool and smart and have good ideas, and so, um, and and in terms of that sixteen thousand number, two things. And I was going to actually ask your advice on this, you guys. Um, one, I was at seven thousand followers when Lena Dunham Instagrammed me, I about me, and I immediately in twenty four hours got seven thousand more. <laughs>
0: Wait, so how did Lena Dunham, is she one of your offline influence friends? Like, how how did that happen? Let's get back to her because I do want to ask you guys about this Instagram thing real quick.
1: Um, Okay. And then I got a bunch more because I'm not going to say who, but someone I know in the wellness industry decided to buy followers. And somehow – I knew that she did because I was getting these floods of light, of floods of new followers. And I was looking at each person, and each person, um, they also followed her. And I'm like, this seems kind of weird that all of these new followers I get, the only person in common is me and her. And so I text her and I said, What's going on with all of these new followers that we're getting? And she said, I am so embarrassed to admit, but I bought followers. And I'm like, okay, well, now it's affecting my account and it feels really gross and icky because I didn't buy followers. So how do you get rid of those? Is there like an app or a program or something? Because I actually don't, like my happy place was having 3,000 really engaged followers. And especially with algorithms and things, like, There's a 50-50 chance people
0: are going to see your shit anyway if you have a shit ton of followers. I know. You know, I feel this way with our Being Boss Facebook group because Facebook started promoting the Being Boss Facebook group just like on a sidebar. So people would see, oh, this is a group for creative entrepreneurs not even knowing about the Being Boss brand. And then – coming in and diluting our Facebook group with spammy sales messages or with negative fights or whatever it might be, right? And, um... And it's really super frustrating because I'm with you where whenever that Facebook group – I remember even at 3,000 people, we were like, this is huge. But everyone was super engaged. And that's actually how we ended up pitching our book and selling it without a huge following. We have a good amount of download numbers from being in the iTunes top charts. But whenever it comes to social media, we're not in that 100,000 club, right? We're not in the six-figure club. And so we really sold the book by letting our agent and our publisher know, okay, listen, we don't have a lot of people, but the people we do have are loyal, they are smart, And they are loud, like they live out loud, and we have no doubt that they're going to buy and share this book with everyone. Because if some, yeah, their following is only a hundred each, you know, like they they all like trust and believe each other. So we love that.
1: If someone sits down and listens to you talk for forty five minutes, that is an engaged audience member, and that's you know that was a big part. Even though I didn't have huge download numbers for the podcast. I mean, the podcast really did help sell the book too. But going back to that Instagram thing, if anyone is listening and knows some sort of app or something that you can get rid of fake bot followers, I do not want them in my, I don't like having them. It makes, every time I open up my account, it just feels icky because it's I did not do that. I did not buy these people that are sort of messing up my game with the
0: people that I really do want to engage with. I think so. that, I mean, my recommendation, Emily, I'm curious to hear what you think is just to continue to engage the people that are really there, right? And, um. But at the same time, and I, I'm
1: not being negative and I like that, but because of the amount of followers it's given me because of the algorithm the people that are my people won't see it anymore.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's totally messed up your Insta game. Like It has. (laughs) Legit, which sucks. I have no idea. I think we should all go on a search or like start bombing Facebook with emails about how this is messing up our game. Maybe not. I feel like there are better activism things to do with your life. But (laughs) But this um, is our business,
1: you know, and I... Yeah. So anyway, I'm just throwing it out there. There has to be something to get rid of those fake bot accounts. There has to be.
0: Well, and this whole conversation is just a good way to show people if you're thinking about buying followers, don't, it's don't not do real. It. Like the numbers aren't real. And it can
1: mess with your friends. And it oh, it makes me livid.
2: Right? Oh, I can tell. Good. It should. It should. Everyone feel her anger. Help her out. All
0: right. I want to talk a little bit more about – I'm going to shift directions here a little bit. I want to talk about, like, actually writing the book. So you pitched the deal. Now you're writing the book. And everyone talks about – if you've read Amy Puller's Yes, Please. Like, she talks about how painful it is to write a book. And I I certainly felt that writing our proposal and even the first couple of chapters. Then I hit my groove. But I'm curious to hear from you – what has, like, the actual writing process been like? Has it been everything that you dreamed of? What what was really super challenging? What was really super awesome about it?
1: Um, I mean, okay, so let me start with challenging because that was definitely the recipes. That was a huge
0: challenge. Um, and I'm, <laughs> every time, every time we're writing, I'm like, at
2: least we're not writing a cookbook. <laughs> Sorry, right? Jessica. I have a very practical question. Yeah, sure. Do you sure. have to
1: buy, like, everything? Do you have, like, a food budget? Okay. <laughs> This 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 is something that I break down so much in the Cookbook Deal podcast. You get your advance check, that first check. It is supposed to cover the photography for the book and the food. That's not possible. I actually ended up – actually, I won't reveal this here because I revealed it in the podcast, but I had to borrow money to do the book. And I, I actually interviewed, um, Michelle Davis from Thug Kitchen. She was making $23,000 a year when she got her book deal at a grocery store. And she had to beg her publisher and her agent and have a very frank conversation with them and say, look, I don't have enough money to make this book and do my life. So I'm going to need my advance check like now. So it's, um, it is, it is really tricky with a cookbook. Because you are paying for all of those groceries and you're paying for all those groceries twice or three times or four times when you have to recipe test. And then if you decide not to shoot it yourself, a cookbook shoot can be anywhere from thirty dollars to
2: $50,000. <laughs> Good. So cookbooks are definitely Realities. like where you should be going, everyone. I love it. I still want to do one. Kathleen, one day I'm doing a cookbook, just so we know.
1: No. So, I mean, it's <sighs> – you know, when it's – I will say, you know, highlights definitely. The photo shoot was one of the most magical working experiences of my life because because I, w- because I did suck it up and borrow money to, to get the photographer I wanted, and that photographer said that I had to hire a prop and food stylist or she wouldn't work with me so that tacked on another $20,000 um and so you know but going to that shoot it was in LA for 10 days going to that shoot and having a whole team work on your project and you just kind of stand back and say mm, I don't like that I like that <laughs> it felt amazing <laughs> it felt amazing my my dad tells this story in the podcast about how he went to um, a baseball fantasy camp. It was like his dream to go to fantasy camp. And he went to a baseball fantasy camp and, you know, he was still kind of young and still making money. And someone hit it, hit the ball, and it was a foul ball and he ran after it. And this guy came up to him and he said, you don't get the foul balls here. And my dad told me, he was like, Stop getting all the foul balls. Like, let someone else get the foul balls. And that advice was like, you know what? You're right. Like, I need to let someone else help me with this. And so I did. And it was the best part of the book was working with that team. But I spent the money to do it. It was a huge investment.
2: Mm.
0: Okay. So are you or are you not friends with Lena Dunham? <laughs> okay. I were well, email friends. How,
1: how did this happen? <laughs> okay. So... Because I have endometriosis, I knew that I wanted someone to contribute to the book that had endo also. And, you know, again, I want to be clear, this is not an endometriosis book, but if I'm going to get to write a book, I'm going to include at least a couple pages about it because it's like my duty in life to do that, and I really wanted to. So I reached out to, well, here's a crafty thing, I'll tell you guys. I knew that I wanted to include someone with endo. I thought Lena was definitely the most – my demographic and the most outspoken about her disease and just someone that I love. And so I went to the acknowledgments page of her book, figured out who her agent was. Because if you want to find somebody, the best person to talk to is their agent. And usually people thank them in the acknowledgments page of their book. And I just, I emailed my editor. And I said, could you get this person's email address for me? And she said, sure. But you realize that she's probably going to say no. And I was like, whatever, I'm going to try. So I just emailed and I said, I would love to have her to contribute something to the book. And her agent wrote back and she said, absolutely. She would love to. And I was like, okay, that was easy. But then the craziest thing happened. And I don't think she would mind me saying this, but, um, Lena actually had to drop out of contributing to the book because her endometriosis started acting up so much. And it's documented, you know, um, she had to uh, drop out of girls' promotion, too, for the book. This happened last February. And she wrote this really beautiful post about how my endometriosis is so bad that I have to drop out of girls' promotion. I'm going to take some time for myself. And so her agent wrote me and she said, I'm really sorry, but she can't work on your project anymore. And I was like, I totally get it. And then I had this moment where I thought, okay, but I want to help her feel good. But I also don't want to come across as a star fucker that's just trying to get to her because, so I, I remember I wrote and I deleted three times. If she ever needs my help, let me know. And I'm like, oh, I shouldn't send this. This seems creepy. But then I just decided to send it. And her agent wrote back and she said she would love your help. And I was like, okay. So I just crafted this really big email for her like I would any other woman in my life with endo. And I said, here's your shopping list. Here's what you should do. And then she emailed me back directly. And she was like, oh, my God, you totally get me. And then she started emailing me her food that she was eating. And so – Two months after that, she wrote back and she said, if it's not too late, I'd like to contribute to your book. And so it just felt good because I will say that when she originally said yes, it was exciting, but it also felt like not a true connection to her. And so it was good, but it was also like, eh. But then when I felt that true, we had an actual connection, it felt very awesome and the foreword that she wrote for the book is just so it made me cry when i read it because it's very beautiful and there's no way she could have written something like that if we hadn't had a true connection so um so i will say that to authors too that are looking for a celebrity or someone to write your foreword and your pr person talks to another pr person
0: i just think it's not going to feel as good unless it's a real relationship I love everything about that. And whenever you were sharing that story, thank you for sharing that. Um, what I. I, you know, Emily and I feel the same way even with our podcast. Like, we have the opportunity to interview really big deals. And sometimes we'll say no because if we're we're not personal fans or if they're not fans of being boss, there's no connection from one mm-hmm. side or the other, right? And so... Well, now I feel
1: really good that you guys had me on.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you should. Well, and yeah, everyone who comes
2: on should.
0: <laughs> no, but truly, I mean, you and I have chatted before and... um. I don't know. There's like this certain amount of pressure. And like you said, not wanting to, to come across as like a star fucker. Like you just want to feel like you're a real person having a real conversation. And whenever it's agents just talking to someone else's agent or someone on a press tour and they're, you're just another person yeah. that they have to talk to. They don't even want to talk right. to you. They have to talk to you for their own press to meet their own press needs. And it's just exhausting for them. It's exhausting for you. And another thing I want to mention about this that really came up as you were sharing that story is that this can happen with non-celebrities too. And this is why it's so important to cultivate your creative friendships and these meaningful relationships and collaborations because even if you're not – even if not one or the other of you is super famous – you can still lift each other up and contribute and co- collaborate in very much the same way. And it still feels probably just as good as it did for you to collaborate with Lena Dunham as it does to, with someone that's not, like you said, Being you boss. would have sent that. Yeah. Well, you would have sent that <laughs> email to anybody,
1: right? Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, I think my hesitation showed. But then I was like, you know what? Fuck it. Like, I actually want to help another woman. Like, I don't care who that person is. And I want to add one other thing to that about the whole celebrity thing is I've noticed on my own podcast that sometimes the bigger the person, sometimes the obvious, the less shares, because sometimes you will interview a very big person. They're promoting 20 other things. They're not promoting a podcast that they were on. And so I find a lot of times the best engagement that I have with my podcast and the more that I grow it is with people that are really passionate about their mission. They want to share and they might not even have that many followers, but they're passionate. And so I, I just think it's, it's good about having people on that, like you said, that you connect with, but aren't necessarily
0: a name, you know? Totally, I even think about whenever I came on your podcast. I've never talked about this topic much anywhere else, but I'm super passionate about it i'll I'll save it for your podcast okay. if you guys want to hear <laughs> I did an interview with Jessica about something super duper personal that I don't really share very often. but it, it, truly, like just having a genuine conversation with anybody feels so much better than just kind of like churning out your talking points, yes, yeah, exactly. Okay, we're running out of time here. Emily, do you have any other questions about the book or writing the book for Jessica? I don't think it sounds so. like you cover a lot of it in your podcast, which I'm super excited to listen to. Yeah.
1: It's uh yeah, I recorded the entire year that I made the book. So there it's just it's a lot of audio recordings and interviews and then a whole bunch of other insane stuff happened during the year. Like my stepmom got run over by a bus. She lived. Um and then, you know, we lived through a hurricane and a flood, so it's like writing a book plus some sort of shit that happens on TV not in real life.
0: Cuz <laughs> life happens even as you're writing a book. Exactly, and you still have to meet the deadline. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um before I let you go, couple things. One, what makes you feel most boss? I
1: would going back to that story, I think other people getting the foul ball. I just like I, I remember HarperCollins, I um I spoke at they had me speak at South by Southwest to a panel and they're they sent an email and they said, you know, here's the car that will be picking you up and I was like, A car? <laughs> I don't have to try to figure out how to get a cat like it just feels good to be taken care of every now and then because. When you are being your own boss, it's you just want someone to do something for you sometimes. So I think I feel the most boss when people get the foul balls and help me.
2: Yes. <laughs> <Hell> yes. Right?
0: <laughs> All right. And finally, <laughs> let us know where our listeners can find the book and where they can find more from you.
1: Sure. You can find me at jessicamernan.com. You can find me on Instagram at jessicamernan and also at One Part Plant. One Part Plant Instagram is just – a big 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 inspiration board of ton of plant-based meals that you can find the podcast thecookbookdeal.com it's also on iTunes and my book one part plant wherever books are sold do you know why you're supposed to say wherever books are sold why <laughs> this Tell is something us. i learned we're, gonna this is s- a- <laughs> we're
0: just going to be like calling you now every other day that's fine i help. listen i
1: i had a handful of authors that had done this before and they were basically my lifeblood during this so I can be yours I will do whatever you want but no they say wherever books are sold because if you favor some published, if you favor some places to others people get mad so you can't just direct all people to Amazon you have to direct people to Barnes and Noble and Indiebound which absolutely makes sense but you have to kind of give equal love to everyone so wherever books are sold no wherever (laughs)
0: all All
2: right thank you so much jessica politics i feel like that's just politics by the (laughs) way there we go there we go but i get it i get it i'll follow the rules hey there bosses Emily here, and here at Being Boss, we're all about working smarter, not harder, and I firmly believe that the internet puts us in a special place to practice working smarter, not harder, to a whole new level. Gone are the days of waiting a week for that piece of mail to land in your inbox or needing to hire people to do every little thing in your business. There are people all over the world using technology and the powers of automation to take care of the mundane tasks for you so that you can focus your energy on the work you're best at. This is why we use Acuity Scheduling. I don't need to spend all day figuring out how to get a meeting on my calendar, accept payments for those appointments, or send reminders to make sure people actually show up. Not when Acuity's tool does all of that for me and more don't be a dinosaur focus on the tasks that matter most acuity scheduling sync your clients your calendar and your cash sign up for your free trial of scheduling sanity at acuityscheduling.com slash being boss
0: thank you for listening to being boss find articles show notes and downloads at www.beingboss.club
2: if you're a creative entrepreneur, freelancer, or small business owner who is ready to take your goals to the next level, check out the Being Boss Clubhouse, a two-day online retreat followed by a year of community support, monthly masterclasses, book club, secret episodes, and optional in-person retreats. Find more at www.beingboss.club clubhouse.